you have a Bible with you, how about if you uh, open it up to uh, Luke chapter 7. I know some of you are looking for your notes on Hebrews. We've been in the study of Hebrews for about 12 weeks, but we're not going to do that today. And it's Mother's Day, okay? After the last couple of weeks, we're so intense um, in Hebrews. I said to my wife, I'm thinking about not teaching Hebrews on Mother's Day. What do you think? She said, if you teach Hebrews on Mother's Day, there will be such a cry as not been heard since the days of Egypt. <laughs> I tried doing that. I taught through the book of Revelation about three years ago, and it was pretty intense, hellfire and brimstone on Mother's Day, and that wasn't such a good idea. So um, I think you're really going to appreciate where we're going this morning with Luke chapter 7. It, it's a very clear vision of God. We would have to agree to a theological truth as we start this, that Jesus reveals God. The, the clearest vision that we have of God, who He is and what He does, is seen in Jesus. And so if Jesus reveals God, and He says that about Himself, John 14, He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He, he literally is saying, I, I look just like my dad. We would have to say, how does Jesus treat women? Because how Jesus treats women is a direct reflection of how God treats women. How God views women is seen in Jesus, because Jesus reveals the nature of God. If you will, he puts his godness on display in Luke chapter 7. So I'm going to pray with you and then step into this text so you can see what I'm referring to. Let's, let's pray first, and then we'll step into Luke chapter 7. God, I ask that you would come alongside each person in this auditorium, no matter where they're at in their walk in life. I pray that your Holy Spirit would sit right next to this individual and that you would be our teacher and our guide and that you would give us a capacity to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Luke chapter 7 verse 11 starts out this way, soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Well, soon after means after he had been in a town called Capernaum. In Capernaum, he had healed a man who was the servant of a centurion, a Roman guard. And because of what he did, there was this large crowd that gathered around him because he fed people, he healed people. And so we see in this very first 11, very first verse, verse 11, he's got a large crowd walking alongside him. And he comes into the city known as Nain. Now, Nain doesn't necessarily take a long time to get to. It'd be like going out the doors of the church this morning and deciding you're going to walk all the way to Grand Ledge, about 25 miles. So Capernaum sits 25 miles apart from Nain, and the average person walking three to four miles an hour is going to make that trip in about eight hours. So Jesus sets out in the morning, and he arrives at the city gates late in the afternoon. He's made this journey, and we're told he's accompanied by this large crowd. Now, why is he dragging this entire entourage with him to this little pin dot on the map? I mean, the Nain is not necessarily a vacation destination. This is a place that still exists today. As a matter of fact, in the time of Jesus, it was inhabited primarily by Jews. Today, it's Arab-occupied, but it's still there, and, and it's a very small dot of a city. It's only mentioned once in the Bible. It's right here, Luke chapter 7. Why is Jesus going to this city? Well, this is a, important for the context of where we're going. In God's operation, His system of operation, everything is fixed. Everything is unchanging. He's planned out all of His perfect intentions. Everything He thinks, everything He says, 
every action is thought through. His objectives, his strategies, his plan, his purposes. This is our God. This is how God acts. As a matter of fact, he says this in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have towards you or for you. Meaning, he literally thinks this all through, what he wants even for your life. But because we have free will, many of us reject that. Many people don't take on God's plans for their life. But God even thinks things through to the degree that he has plans for us. Uh, I have to be amazed by this because it's absolutely staggering to me. There's no random thoughts in God's mind. And, and God doesn't forget or miss any details. Even when you feel like your world is spinning out of control, it doesn't surprise God. Let me show you this, what he says about himself in Isaiah 46. This is God speaking. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So if I can pound this point one more time before we move on, we're talking about sovereign providence Every thought, every word, every act operates perfectly within his purposes. That This is absolutely staggering to me because I still go to my wife and say, should I wear the black pants or the brown pants? God has everything thought out. That is staggering to me. And you find this exact same resolve in Jesus. So when Jesus leaves Capernaum, and walks 25 miles to this little pin dot on the map, you know that there's a reason for it. And we see in the verse that he's not alone. He's got his disciples with him. He's got this large crowd, and these are mostly curiosity seekers, but they're following him. Go with me to verse 12. It says this, not as, Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. So the sizable crowd is because in the first century, when funerals took place, it wasn't just the family and immediate friends. It was the entire city showed up for a funeral because the communities were not that big and they all knew each other and they interacted together. So the entire family, the entire community family shows up and it's very noisy and it's emotional. And mourning for an only child is especially bitter. We see in verse 14 that this is a young man. In the first century, young man in, in Israel could be anything from age 14 to age 39. You, you hit 40 and you're no longer considered a young man. But the biblical definition is we don't really know where this young man fits in that spectrum. What we do know is that Jesus left in the morning from Capernaum and likely this young man is not dead yet because in the Middle East they bury their dead on the day that they die. So when Jesus sets out in the morning and makes this eight-hour, nine-hour walk, the young man probably died sometime during the walk. That tells me what's going to unfold in this story is really part of God's foreknowledge and thought about exactly what he was going to do, knowing that this young man was going to die. So here's what the family's responsibilities would be. They would first anoint the body with some type of perfume to keep it from smelling in the Mediterranean sun as the day heated up. And they would wrap it in a white linen cloth. And then they would hire professional mourners because you can't just find them any place for someone to play the instruments. So they, they needed a minimum of two flute players, and they needed a, a cymbal, like the percussion section. 
And then they would hire two women who would be the professional criers to lead this entourage of people, that they would be celebrated well. Now, we're told that Jesus collides with them at the gate of the city in verse 12. This is the head of Main Street. This is Marsh Road meeting Hazlitt Road, where everything comes to an intersection. That's where they meet. As a matter of fact, at the city gates is where the leaders of the city always adjudicated legal issues. Now, apparently, they've already gone through the entire town because there was a parade, typically, of the dead body through the town to gather all the people to mourn. And as they go out of the city gate, their reason for going out of the city gate is to go to the cemetery because cemeteries weren't inside the city. They're outside. So they're coming out while Jesus is coming in. And we're given this detail in verse 12. She's a widow. So she's without a man in the first century. And her only son dies. So the man who was her provider, her husband, is dead somehow in the time past. And now her only son has died. So in the first century, we have a woman who's unable to earn a living because women didn't work outside the home. That wasn't what was expected of them in first century Israel. So we find a woman who's going to have no financial security leading her only son's funeral procession with no support, no future family. And now she's not only in sorrow, she's alone in a society that has no system in place for caring for widows. What's going to happen to her? What is her destiny? So Jesus begins to feel the pain invading this woman's world. Now, you might look at this scenario and say, from, from a human standpoint, that's a startling coincidence. I mean, how lucky for her. She's coming out with her son dead at the city gate just when Jesus shows up. Wow. Is there luck in God's scenario, church? Is there anything coincidental? No. So God is intentional. God is purposeful. God left Capernaum to go to this city with this large crowd following him. Her large crowd comes out, and he didn't arrive 10 minutes too early. He didn't arrive 10 minutes too late. He arrived right at the moment, specifically on time. So there's no such thing as coincidence with God. Verse 13, let's go there. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. So the Lord saw her. What's going on in this look? Well, you really have to go back to the setting to appreciate this look in which Jesus makes eye contact with this woman. So we've got these two large crowds heading out, opposite crowds, and going in opposite directions. One crowd coming out, one crowd coming in. Two crowds, two dispositions. One crowd is the Jesus crowd. They're ecstatic, they're exuberant, they're enthusiastic. Well, except for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, they're sad every place they go. That's why they're called sad, you see? Oh, I hear the groans. Some of you would throw tomatoes if you could. Oh. So you got, you've got the ecstatic crowd, the excited crowd. But then you've got the funeral crowd, and they're in mourning. There's no joy. There's no expectation. There's not even a sense of hope. In this setting... Which crowd yields to the other crowd? Which crowd stops doing what they're doing? I'm thinking 
the Jesus crowd, probably became very somber in that moment. They, they see the line of black cars with the little orange flags on it and realize, whoa, funeral procession. They may even begin to shuffle aside. When you look at the story and you look at it closely, what I want you to see is Jesus doesn't move. In this moment, he's face to face with a woman whose grief is crushing her. And he doesn't move. The funeral procession comes to a halt. This woman is in the midst of life trauma, and her grief is palpable. So he has to be not only looking at her deliberately, but because of the Greek word I'm going to show you in just a moment, he's looking at her deeply. He's not just seeing the surface. He sees what's going on in her soul. And you notice she doesn't ask for a thing. No one asks Jesus to do anything. He just does. Why? Because God has his eye on her. In the same way that God sees you throughout the course of your week and what you do, God has his eye on those parents this morning dedicating their children to him. In that same way, God has his eye on her. And in the midst of her distress, she doesn't escape his notice. Rather, what you see here is she's the focus of his attention. She's lost her husband at some time in the past. She's a widow. And now she's lost her only son, and she's going out to bury him. First century funeral, family always leads the way. Family, just like in 2014, is in front. So she leads the way of this funeral procession with the professional mourners behind her and her entire community grieving along with her. So she leads the procession to the graveyard, and we've already established the fact that God doesn't accidentally bump into her. So what you're about to see is something of the nature of God, something unique to Jesus that is also part of who God is because Jesus reveals God. So something true of Jesus is true of God. Verse 13 says, He felt compassion for her. English language, that word doesn't mean a lot. Greek language, and I know if you've been at New Hope a period of time, you're familiar with this word perhaps. It it sounds like an Italian dish, pasta dish. It's splagnizzo ma he. Sounds like spaghetti a little bit. It, It means to have the bowels hurt, to yearn. To the degree that the the Jews actually experience not just the gut ache, but the increase of, of heart rate. There was an increase, a physical reaction to what Jesus is seeing here. Now, she's never met Jesus. Matter of fact, I don't even know that she knows who Jesus is. This is a one time visit. And God gets a gut ache, if you will, over what he's seeing going on in this woman's life. Why? Step all the way back to the Old Testament. Moses on Mount Sinai. He spent months talking, interacting with God, going before Pharaoh, carrying out the things that God told him to carry out, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. But then Moses goes back up to Mount, on Mount Sinai and he says to God the Father, I've never seen you. I want to see you. I want to see your face. And God says, no man can see me and live. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and as I pass by, I will put my hand over your face, and all my glory will go past you. 
and you will experience the glory of who I am, and I will declare my name in your presence. That, that actually is captured for us in Exodus 34, 6. Look at what God does here in this setting. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. What's the first word he uses about himself, church? Compassionate. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. The very first word he brings out. And I'm gracious, and I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. See, this is our God. So against a backdrop of world religions who celebrate false gods, you don't find merciful, loving, gracious, forgiving nature. In the God of the Bible, you find this God who is compassionate, forgiving, merciful. And so this powerful image of God in Jesus rips his heart to see what this woman is enduring because it was never supposed to be this way. She's an offspring of Eve. We're men, offspring of Adam. And by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death followed. So sin and death came. But it was never supposed to be that way, and God knows that. And so Jesus sees this and feels this compassion. It's a nature of God to feel compassion. And it's directed towards a mom. A mom who is destitute, who's robbed of joy. She's got no future, and she's all alone. Now, you've been to funerals like I have, perhaps, and you've heard someone say to a person at the funeral who's in mourning, don't cry. And they put their hand around them and pat them on the back. Generally, what's going on in that setting is the person who's saying don't cry feels really uncomfortable about the person crying. And so we want them to stop crying, mostly for our benefit, but we do want to give compassion. And it sounds really hollow sometimes to tell someone who's crying for good reason not to cry. We tell others not to cry because we're uncomfortable. So in this moment, those words spoken by anyone else can sound hollow if they're not well-intentioned. But spoken by Jesus, this one who can say that and can stop not only the tears but remove the cause of the tears, you know that the situation must not be permanent. Now, what you, what you should notice up to this point is all the initiative has been taken by Jesus. He's taken every action so far in response to need. Let's go to verse 14. It says, "...and he came and touched the coffin." And the bearers came to a halt. Uh, stop right there, because in, in the New Testament, in, in especially in the Old Testament too, there's 350 plus negative laws. Don't do this. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. There's lots of those don't do things. At the very top of the list, don't touch dead people, because it would defile you. And so there's this command that comes out of the Old Testament book of Numbers. It says if you have contact with dead people, you're defiled. Numbers, 13, Numbers 19, 13 says this, Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. So it's the end of the day, and the people who are carrying the corpse have him on a flat wicker stretcher. That's what a coffin looked like at that time. The dead bodies wrapped in a white sheet or white linens. They've got them on this wicker stretcher. And Jesus walks up and makes personal physical contact with this coffin. 
Now, that brings the procession of the funeral to a halt. The reverberation of brake lights all the way down the road. Donkeys come to a screeching halt. Wow, something's happened up ahead. I can't see what it is, but the funeral has stopped. Now, if you're a pallbearer, you're totally caught off guard. What do you do in that setting? Jesus comes up and puts his hand on the coffin. I don't know a lot about this setting, but I promise you, those two crowds knew the law of God from the Old Testament. And in this setting, a hush comes over the crowd because their leader, the one that everybody's following, has just defiled himself by touching a dead body. Now, with what you know about God and what God can do, does Jesus actually need to make physical contact with a coffin to do what he's about to do? Say, say that so your neighbor can hear you. Did, no, he doesn't. He doesn't actually need to touch the body. I mean, we see that with Lazarus. He stands outside Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. There's no touching at that point. So if he's deliberately, and God does things deliberately, if there's a deliberate touching, what's going on here in this action? This touch is God taking authority over a situation. He's showing his purposeful, intentional action to take control. Why? Because this woman is vulnerable. This woman is in a vulnerable position. And so Jesus is going to step up and intervene. And men, this is an example for us. He becomes her defender. In a moment when a woman is vulnerable, this man defends her because her future is absolutely obliterated. That's why she's grieving. Now, Jesus is doing, from a human perspective, what seems useless. Now, if you're a human looking at another human and you watch somebody step into the intersection and stop the hearse, you're thinking, what is up with that? It's not only useless, it seems socially improper. We have that list in our mind of do's and don'ts, things that are social don'ts that we don't do. Like if a pedestrian is crossing in an intersection, you don't speed up the car, right? Right? I hope you don't. You don't speed up the car. Men, you, your wife gets a new hairstyle. You don't say to her verbally, wow, that looks kind of weird, right? Well, if you do, you'll do it once, especially on Mother's Day. You, you, just, you might think something like that, but you don't say that. Here's one of the don'ts. You don't stop a hearse in the midst of a funeral procession. And by all means above that, don't talk to the dead guy inside the hearse. Jesus has got two big don'ts right here in the middle of this social setting. King Jesus isn't restrained by the accepted norms of behavior. Aren't you glad for that? He'll do what no one else will do. He'll step in where no one else would step in. He would go to the cross and die for us. Nobody else would ever have that enter their mind. Jesus does what no one else will do. He talks to dead people. Let's go to the last part of verse 14. It says this, And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, you wouldn't want to own a funeral home in the towns that Jesus visits because you're going to go out of business really quick. I mean, that's really bad for the bottom line. Oh, great, Jesus is coming. Oh, there goes business this week. It just wouldn't be so good for you. What would that be like in eternity? If you're the dead person, and you hear the voice of the one 
who spoke the universe into existence call you out across eternity and, and say, young man, arise. I'm convinced he had to say, young man, or everybody in the cemetery would have arisen at that point. He had to say, young man, I say to you, arise. The same one who breathed stars into existence. Did, did you know that about your God? That's what Scripture says. Look with me at this passage, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Hosts are stars. How big is your God to breathe stars into existence? This one who created the universe, the same one who breathed stars, tells death it has no power. Satan, you've lost. So you have the creator and the created. The one who speaks life to only sons, the only son of the woman who's about to bury him, and the only son of God. The one who speaks life opens his mouth, and power explodes from the mouth of the maker. And in this moment, he says, arise. And in a nanosecond, the heart that was dead and decaying inside the chest begins pumping. The flesh that was gray and cold to the touch warms with the blood surging through it. And in a moment, his eyes open up and he sees a bright blue Mediterranean sky. What's going on in this second? This is God. Did you know, church, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not a believer in Jesus Christ, one day you're going to hear that voice. That same voice you're going to hear call to us. This is just a foreshadow of what you will personally hear. According to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, Everyone is going to hear his voice. Look with me on the screen. John 5, 28. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. That, that's in the final day. At the end of the age, his voice is going to thunder across eternity. And all creation will respond. Some will be resurrected to spend eternity in heaven with King Jesus. Some will be resurrected to stand before the white throne and stand in judgment before Jesus. And we'll find that they never knew the Creator, and the Creator never knew them. That's not where we're going this morning, but I just want you to understand, everybody's going to hear this voice one day. Let's see what happened as a result of the voice. Verse 15, it says, The dead man sat up and began to speak. That'll break up a funeral, won't it? I mean, I've never been to a funeral where the dead man sat up and spoke. That'll change everything. It's no longer a funeral in this moment. The dead guy is talking. Wouldn't you love to hear the story he had to tell? See, this isn't a near-death experience. It's a death experience. They're on their way to the cemetery to put him in the ground. This guy is dead, dead, dead. And the remarkable thing is this story is being written by Luke, who's a physician. L Luke, who's a medical doctor, is given this scenario to record. And what can he do with it? But record it by detail. Because this is what happened. So look at verse 15, the remainder of it, to see how Jesus handled this moment. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's a celebration. Cue cool in the gang. How cool is that? That's wonderful. Makes you want to dance, doesn't it? Okay, Bob. You ain't having too much fun with that. Start moving up in the booth. I have no rhythm, otherwise I'd dance for you. <laughs> this is a celebration. 
So fire the wailing women. This is a party now. Imagine the crowd. The dead young man sits up and starts talking. You don't even know what to do with it, do you? But on top of that, this amazing act of tenderness. In that moment, Jesus gives him back to his mom. The one who knows the depth of a mom's heart. Who created her. This one who can elevate women does because he can and because he wants it that way. This one who can elevate women does. Understand, this is unprecedented in the history of the world. Up until the first century, women were treated as nothing more than household possessions. They were viewed as furniture. They were just a usable product. Now, they're a little bit better lot in in Israel in in the first century, but not much better. It's unprecedented because Jesus not only met the needs of women, he drew women into his circle and said, these are people that I trust. Part of the people who followed him every place he went were the women in a culture, in a day and age when that just wasn't done. Now we've got a woman who's destitute and Jesus elevates her to this degree where she's revered and honored. Everything in society changed as a result of the arrival of Jesus. How we treat children today that we have hospitals, how we treat orphans, widows, women. It all turned on a dime in the first century. Chase it back and you'll see it because of what Jesus did. Let's look at the reaction of the crowd as we end this. Verse 16, fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea, and in all the surrounding district. So both crowds explode in praise, except among the group, they don't know what to do with Jesus, so they say, a great prophet has arisen. Well, was Jesus a great prophet? Yeah, you probably could use that label. But it's really dangerous to stop there. See, there's world religions that say Jesus was nothing more than a man. They don't know what to do with him because he's a historical figure. He really lived. And so they say, he's a great prophet. Well, if you stop there, it's absolutely deadly. Underestimating Jesus is deadly. He is the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity. That's what the crowd kind of missed. But more importantly, what we have going on here is these two only sons meeting. The only son who is the dead one of the widow and the only Son of God, who meet in this moment, and it provides a proving ground for God's nature and how you can expect Him to be viewed in your life is appropriate to what we see going here because Jesus reveals the nature of God. So notice this very closely as I close. God takes authority over the situation. Now, as a guy... I can easily identify with the Jesus who pulls out the whip and goes into the temple and chases out the many changers and flips over the tables. I mean, that's cool. If you're a guy, you're identifying with us saying, yeah, get him, Jesus. That's, that's the avengeful side of God saying, get out of here, you sinners. There's people that were mistreating God's house. As a guy, I can totally identify with the Jesus who stands on the boat in the midst of the storm and says, Silence! And shuts down nature. I thought, it's cool. But as a guy, I need to be reminded 
of the tender side of Jesus. And we see it right here. To be reminded of the tender side of Jesus is to see that he's purposeful. He steps up and he intervenes. Young men that are here today, especially hear this. How you respond to this issue is a reflection of how Jesus is prevalent in your life. How you revere your mother how you revere the women around you when you see Jesus being a model of a defender of the weak. He sets the bar. He shows us, guys, what it looks like to be intentional and what it looks like to be decisive and to act with conviction, but at the same time to do it with tenderness. I don't know how that fits into your life, but you can draw your own parallels, but I find it especially poignant on Mother's Day to see how Jesus treated women. That's not the only thought I want to send you out with this morning. I want to take you back just to this thought that God does not forget, God does not miss any details because He's purposeful and intentional. He's God. Except when you leave here this morning, remember there is one thing that God does forget. One thing specifically He says about Himself. He says, if you come to me on the basis of who Jesus Christ is, I will forget your sins and remember them no more. Is that not an amazing thought? The God who doesn't miss any details, nothing escapes his attention. That one rock in our life that becomes this burden that we carry with us, our sinful action, God says, you come to me on the basis of Jesus, I will forget your sins, I will separate them as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. It's an amazing thought, but to have that, you need to trust Jesus. So those two thoughts as you go out this morning, women were revered by Jesus, and that God the Father, he will forget one thing. If you've never heard that before, I wanted you to especially hear that this morning. He will forget your sins if you come to him on the basis of who Jesus is. I want to pray for you about those two issues as you go out this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know who, but you do. Somebody especially needed to hear that this morning. And I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is necessary and that you would bring comfort where comfort is needed. Father, as we go out before you and take on this world, we ask that you would open up opportunities for us to represent you well this week. And that at the end of the week, we can look back and and see that we walked boldly before you. To do that, Father, we have to be in relationship with you. So for those who are not, God, I ask that you would come alongside them and and show them, either through a friend or through myself, show those individuals what it means to know Jesus Christ. Father, I, I believe I'm talking to a greater group here of believers, those who have identified themselves with you. And for those, I ask that you give them the capacity to walk before you with confidence and to intervene when intervention is necessary and to become defenders of the vulnerable. God, that you would give us a confidence to step up when we need to step up. Thank you for these people. Father, I thank you for the time spent in your word and I ask for your blessing as a result of the study effort 
that these men and women put forth today in being here in church. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.